Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, training venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Shane I, who runs product R&D at Bybit. Shane, it's so great to have you on. Thanks, Joshua. Great to be on. And so what did you do before, uh, you know, crypto, you know, what, what was your kind of, uh, you know, your roles before you fell down the proverbial rabbit hole? Uh, and, and, and specifically, can you talk about your experiences at Louis Dreyfus Company and OCBC? <laughs> All right. So I graduated from college in uh, 2015. So my first job of college was, a, was an FX trader at OCBC Bank. So that's uh, one of the biggest uh, local banks in Singapore. and. Uh, so I was working on the FX desk for a bit, um, mainly doing spot, uh, a little bit of uh, exposure to NDS as well. And um, after that, I moved on to uh, Louis Dreyfus, which probably is not a name that is familiar to guys in crypto, I guess. Well, I think everyone knows the great granddaughter of Louis Dreyfus. It's uh, <laughs> Julia Louis yeah. Dreyfus from Seinfeld's uh, great grandfather's company, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for those, uh, just a quick like uh, um, description of what Louis Dreyfus is. Uh, it's basically one of the biggest uh, agricultural trading companies in the world. So when I was there, I was uh, working on uh, cotton specifically and uh, was trading a lot of futures options, uh, mainly derivatives. And I uh, spent some time in, in the U.S. actually. You know, um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, another couple of years in uh, Beijing, China. So that was a pretty interesting uh, point of view from my head. And so, how did you go from from trading uh, cotton at, at Louis Dreyfus in Memphis, Tennessee, to uh, discovering crypto? You know, what what was that process? You know, when and how did you discover crypto? And you know, how long did it take you to fall down the that that rabbit hole? Yeah. So. I actually got into crypto when I was in college. So, uh, you know, back then, uh, Bitcoin was uh, a very niche uh, uh, kind of um, area to venture into. So, well, I wouldn't really comment on the specifics, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to buy something online. So, so you know, I, I had to do it through Bitcoin. I mean, it was more like mentation for me. We, and, uh, we we all we all know that story. I was speaking to somebody the other day, uh, my cousin's boyfriend actually, and uh, he logged into his Binance account or his Coinbase account and had uh, two Bitcoin. And he's like, "Where did this come from?" He called his dad. Is like he's like his dad was like, "Yeah, remember when I sent you money to buy a fake ID in 2012 or 2013? That's where it came from." So we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of time in uh, traditional finance, so to speak. In the following years but you know i've always been looking at crypto markets seeing how it's been developing and uh i guess what we are seeing right now is uh really revolutionary or, or game-changing right so you know when I, I guess as a trader like uh how mindset i had was that i want to try and like figure out trends before they actually happen so i think that's the main reason why i decided to take the big step into uh you know actually working for a crypto firm and so when, when did you, so was Bybit your first job in crypto? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, so, and so when did you, when did you join the company and, and why did you decide, uh, you know, Bybit over another firm in the space? You know, what attracted you to, to, you know, joining the company? Yeah. So I actually joined the company like, uh, six months ago. So late last year, you know, and the reason why I chose Bybit was that, uh, you know, uh, being a derivatives guy. Okay, basically, the, the way I, I look at markets is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not it's crypto, commodities, uh, FX, stocks, whatever, right? Derivatives are, in general, uh, priced um, using the same principles. So when you look at how much derivatives are trading relative to spot, especially in crypto, you know, that's a huge percentage and even in traditional finance markets as well. So 
I understood where the potential was going forward, right? And, uh, you know, like watching the space for quite a bit, I, you know, understand the main players and I know who the main exchanges are. You know, when I look at how Bybit uh, treats customers and, uh, you know, how, uh, what they prioritize, uh, you know, I thought, you know, this was a good place to, uh, you know, start my journey in crypto. And I guess it's also a great fit for, uh, you know, my, my skills and derivatives. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I mean, Bybit is now, what, the se- the second largest derivatives exchange in the world, you know, behind Bi- Binance. So it's certainly, uh, you know, started to attract a ton of volume and, and grow. And so can you kind of explain to us, you know, what is Bybit and, and what actually makes it different from other derivatives exchanges in this space? Yeah, okay. So basically, Bybit is a purely derivatives exchange. So if you think of a couple of other exchanges, uh, they have spot markets, right? You can just buy outright like one-to-one USD to Bitcoin, for example, right? Um, what Bybit specializes in is purely uh, derivatives. And in our scenario, we are looking specifically at uh, perpetual swaps. So, I mean, the two most common or the two most popular products for swaps are uh, linear and inverse. And, you know, we do about uh, 10 billion USD uh, average trader volume on a daily basis. So I would say um, uh, in the market, we pretty much have uh, one of the deepest uh, liquidity, especially for our main uh, BDC pair. And probably a fun fact that um, some listeners may not know is that uh, we basically have almost no downtime, right? So, you know, when the market is like super volatile. We've all had our Coinbase accounts go down. I think every listener probably (laughs) has at some point. Yeah. And and so one thing that I notice is that Bybit has ten markets. If you look at the other large derivatives exchanges, uh, or you know exchanges that offer derivatives like Hobie, you know OKEX, Binance, they're offering hundreds of markets. And so, so what is the reason why Bybit only offers a, a few markets versus you know some of the, the com- competitive products in the space? I mean, I know Deribit is in a similar boat to Bybit, but would love to get your take on that. Yeah, in in general, I think we like to focus on quality over quantity. So I think from an outsider's point of view, uh, it looks extremely simple to, you know, simply list a a new swap product, right? And, uh, uh, but on the back end, you know, the amount of considerations they have to go into when you create a new product, when you list a new uh, feature, things like that, you know, um, it actually takes uh, a lot of work and uh, and for sure, like, uh, uh, we like to focus on depth. So say, for example, like, there's a reason why we are, you know, one of the deepest uh, liquid swap markets uh, globally right now. And the reason for that is that we, we choose to focus on uh, what works the best and making sure that our core product works extremely well. Having said that, you know, we recognize that the market is also evolving and, uh, you know, like uh, there's definitely uh, some demand from customers or, you know, um, to, to add additional features, uh, additional products and coins and things like that. You know, how, how do you actually go about identifying, uh, you know, new tokens to list? You know, what is, what is the starting point or impetus for actually adding new assets? But, but more so than that, you said there's a lot of considerations. And I'd love to kind of hear what some of those are beyond just, you know, liquidity concerns. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like the top process when uh, we look at uh, new coins or, or new product offerings, the number one factor that we always think about is how much does the market actually want it, right? So let's say like uh, if you go on Twitter, right, you see like, you know, random guys just requesting for uh, certain coins, you know, here and there, you know, but when you actually list the product, it, you know, you, you actually don't see much trade volume, right? So it means that it's, it's just isolated corners of the market that's demanding this stuff, right? So one of the main things that we have to do is to make sure that you know, there is actually a, a huge market demand for this, right? Which makes sense for both uh, us and um, our customers as well. And then on top of that, you know, we, we have to do our research. We look at the market. We look at actual volume traded across exchanges, things like that, right? And then at the end of the day, we want to go for a high quality product at minimum risk to, you know, our customers. 
And and so you know your your job uh, at Bybit is focused around product R and D. So can you kind of describe and explain to us what what that job means and and what your day to day looks like? Yeah. So on my end, what I do is primarily I look at the market. Right. I have to keep up with uh, you know what's been going on. You know, and a lot of that uh, is uh, helped along by my previous experience as a trader. Right. So I can. By looking at certain market data points, I can understand, uh, uh, you know, what the participants are doing, where the main demand is, how does retail think, how does institutional guys, how, how do they think? Yeah, so going moving ahead from that, then, you know, uh, typically you can form a hypothesis, you know, but what kind of product does the market actually demand? You know, what can we offer them? You know, and uh, probably and most importantly, how can we do it in a, uh, minimum risk fashion. So you can say that to a certain extent, you know, like uh, th- there is a trade-off between uh, trying to list as many things and, and you know, uh, trying to drum as much PR as possible when you list like like five new products in a span of a month. But if uh, our belief is always, has always been that, you know, if you want to do something, uh, do it well, right? So so we, we take a calculated risk approach uh, when it comes to new products and, you know, we, we talk as a team, uh, we think whether or not it's really going to make sense. And most importantly, does it serve the needs of our customers? So can, can you kind of walk us through the different products that Bybit offers, you know, customers? But, you know, what, what's more exciting to us is obviously your job is, you know, working in the, you know, quote unquote R&D lab on, on new products. So I'd love to kind of hear, you know, you don't need to necessarily give us any surprises, but the types of things that you guys are considering adding and, you know, things that have you excited. Mm, yeah, I, I would say like uh, yeah, like you mentioned, I, I can't really comment on the specifics of uh, what exactly we are, we, are, we, are, we have in the pipeline right now. But um, you know, I, I would say that uh, what a lot of customers have demanded in the past, you know, uh, certain features that uh, are very intrinsic to certain other exchanges. You know, we, we hear our customers, and, and we are uh, more than happy to accommodate uh, certain demands going forward. But, you know, like uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's always uh, uh, starting from the perspective of the customer that we are going from. And uh, yeah, if I were a current user of private, uh, I'll be really excited and keep a lookout for, for, you know, new features of products. And so what what is the, like, what is the average Bybit customer i mean you know you know how is your is your user base more retail is it more institutional you know geographically speaking where is it based i mean when, when you talk about bybit customers you know obviously i'm sure it's a mix right i'm sure you have institutional market makers and you have institutional participants trading via api but i'd love to kind of get a sense of you know what bybit's customer base actually looks like but but more so than that how it's actually changed during this uh, you know recent uh, you know market movement yeah, uh, I would say in general, our mix is uh, it's, it's pretty mixed across our uh, institutional retail, and uh, you know, like with the liquidity that we have, uh, definitely, um, uh, you know, that's really attractive for, for you know institutional art boards. Uh, I would say retail is a pretty big segment as well. Like, uh, uh, I think what we offer them uh, in terms of you know the no downtime, the flexibility. The, the fee structure, things like that. Basically, uh, we we try to cater to to a range of uh, market appetites, right? So, in general, we build a product that uh, retail really likes. You know, it makes sense for you know institutions to come in once the once the liquidity is uh, strong. So, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much what I can say about this. Okay, so so let's kind of you know hop into you know maybe more pointed questions on, on the market then, or actually one one other thing before we get into that. But you know what are what are, what would you say are the you know the biggest challenges associated with operating a cryptocurrency exchange? I mean, I assume uptime is one of them, but but are there any specific challenges that are related to the derivatives market? I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is is reference pricing in my head of actually pricing derivatives contracts. But I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts. Yeah, 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 you're spot on on this one. Basically. Um, you know, like uh, let's use DeFi as a uh, as an example, right? Like, uh, say a protocol uh, gets exploited, right? And uh, you know, uh, one of the main vulnerabilities is basically the oracle, right? So sometimes, like a vault uh, relies on a single price oracle, 
right? Uh, you know, when when uh, most of the time it works okay, but when shit hits the fan, then uh, uh, you know you open up opportunities for people to attack uh, protocol, right? So derivatives exchanges have had this problem from day one, right? You think about reference pricing, you think about how you how you wanna uh, force convergence between uh, virtual swaps and, and the spot market. So, you know, like 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 uh, traditionally, uh, derivatives exchanges have always uh, used a mix of uh, uh, different high volume, high liquidity exchanges uh, as uh, reference prices. So that's one of the uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a challenge, but more of one of those things that we have to keep in mind when we uh, launch a new product or, or uh, even like monitor what's going on in the market and. Uh, you know, like uh, the other details regarding the rules of the contract. So, for example, right, um, the market may look at funding rates in general, right? Um, they may say, you know, like like if you compare exchange A versus exchange B, right? And oh, look at the difference between the funding rates, or you compare them all in the same line, right? But I think if you really read between the lines, or, or even just read the docs uh, on each exchange and how they price their swaps or how do you calculate their funding rates you don't see quite a huge difference and uh, uh, so that's one of the details that, that we have to keep in mind as well and in general uh, you have to think about like how the users uh, of the platform are, are going to behave right like there's going to be good actors bad actors it's going to be guys who are retail and they just you know do straight up huge leverage and then there's going to be guys who are just you know trying to uh, earn some yield on the funding rate right so whatever we design has to take into account all these uh, uh, factors, right? So we can design a product that is uh, uh, most palatable to, to uh, as many market participants as possible. And so with, with reference pricing specifically, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people probably point to this. And I'm not sure you remember, but, uh, you know, BitMEX uh, a couple of years ago, I guess at this point, had a, had a big problem where basically Bitstamp was a third of the reference price. And you know, people realized that Bitstamp, at least at the time, was you know significantly more illiquid than a Coinbase. And if they moved the price on Bitstamp, they could you know move the reference price on on Bitmax and cause massive cascading liquidations. And so, how do you actually go about you know calculating a reference price uh, and and I and I and making sure that you know if there's outliers or if there's issues on an individual exchange. It doesn't. It doesn't mess with the actual reference price on your platform and cause un- unnecessary liquidations. Yeah. So this is a problem that uh, we, you know, have at the back of our mind all the time, right? So when we design our spot index, we actually go a step further in our algorithm and uh, try and make it such that uh, it's naturally designed such that when such things happen, we uh, our index is robust enough. And uh, of course, like uh, there, there are other ways around it, like more brute force approaches, like uh, you can list more exchanges, for example, right? And it's going to load the system a bit more. So it's always a trade-off. And so coming back to your you know, pre-crypto experience, what parallels have you seen between traditional and crypto markets? And what perspectives did your you know, experience in you know, banking and commodities help you bring to the, uh, you know, the digital asset space? Yeah, on this... How about I ask you about this uh, first, uh, Josh? So, so in your mind, uh, what do you think uh, Bitcoin is? Is it a security? Is it, you know, an asset? Or, or what, what would you categorize it as? What would I categorize Bitcoin as? I think that's a really tough question. Um, you know, I think in my mind, you know, I, I would bring crypto into the discussion, and I think Bitcoin has, you know, in some ways emerged as a macro asset, but I think. The thing to keep in mind, and I think the thing that people forget is not twelve not twelve months ago did Bitcoin crash down to thirty seven hundred dollars. So I'm not one hundred percent convinced that it's really established itself as a macro asset. I think we need to see that over time. But I would say broadly speaking, uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting asset, um, you know, for any institution to look at, given its uncorrelated nature to the rest of the market, uh, and you know, you know, some of the kind of more hedging properties of it, you know, and I would I would I would kind of book. You know the rest of crypto as an asset class as well, but I, I I like to at least in my own thinking completely separate out Bitcoin from the rest of crypto markets. Right, I I look at most of the rest of crypto markets as gambling, 
Uh, whereas Bitcoin actually seems like it's it's more of a and look, I'm part of the gambling. I'm not going to say I'm not, but you know, cri- you know, Bitcoin seems like it's it's established itself over the last 13 or so years as you know a serious asset that I think any institution can consider. You know, whereas I think you know that's not necessarily the case with you know shitcoin five to five million. So, right, right, yeah. So, so I guess what you're saying right now is from a crypto perspective, uh, that's what it looks like, right? So. From my end, fundamentally, I see no difference between Bitcoin and say like uh, a commodity like uh, oil or grain or or cotton even, right? Because if you think about it, let's say if I were a crop farmer in the US, right? In, in, in Tennessee, right? And uh, I was growing this crop, right? And then eventually I got to sell it to you know, a trading firm or, or you know, a, a mill that eventually spins that uh, cotton into yarn, right? So so you have an originating uh, source of where this stuff is coming from and you have end user of it, which is the buyer, right? And the buyer forms like a narrative around what this thing they're buying is, right? Is it something for them to process into something else? Is it a store of value for them as in the case of gold and silver? Or is it something more industrial, right? So if you think about the mining uh, industry in Bitcoin, you think about the funds that are actually picking up Bitcoin, you know, it effectively you're looking at the same thing. And the guys in the middle are the exchanges, right? They facilitate uh, the trading of this stuff. So it's pretty interesting coming from my perspective where, you know, I also used to looking at industrial commodities. And when I see something like Bitcoin, you know, it in a very simplistic sense, it is uh, tokenized uh, electricity, right? So, so uh, from my end, uh, that's how I see it. And uh, you know, over time, the market develops different narratives, right? Like, like you mentioned, you know, like like it's tough to, to put a definition on it or, or to put a category on it. But uh, like 2017, maybe it was more like a payments network kind of a narrative, and today it's more of a store of value narrative. Who knows, maybe like another four or five years because things move so fast in crypto. It's going to be another kind of um, narrative around it, right? And um, But the, the basic rules of supply and demand still hold, right? So like when you talk about a halving cycle, when you talk about different narratives that form that, that cause demand to show up, you know, that's going to impact price in a big way and that's what we are seeing right now. Okay, and uh, that's the first thing, right? And Second thing is that um, in traditional markets, the markets are developed enough to an extent that you don't really need to worry about counterparty risk. But in crypto, this is a huge thing, right? You, I mean, like, like uh, uh, it's, it's evolved to the extent that, um, say, a DeFi protocol like uh, Nexus Mutual has to um, offer products on, on centralized exchanges, right? Because everyone knows the risk with putting your coins on a centralized exchange, right? Or you do an OTC deal, and and you have to worry about you know how, how it's actually going to turn up, right? So this uh, this counterparty risk is is something that are uh, uh, really huge in in crypto, and and, uh, and I mean that makes it more interesting and fun, right? To be honest, okay. And I guess finally, if you think about um, traditional markets, right? Like I think of crypto today as um, you know, financial markets, say in the 80s, right? You still see a lot of structural inefficiencies. So such inefficiencies, you know, have, have already been opted out in like tra- traditional finance markets, right? But in, in crypto, because the market cap is still so tiny, you know, this... Are you talking um, about like basis trading and spot futures ARB and stuff like that? Or even something as simple as lending rates on compound, right? That's... <laughs> I mean, if you compare that to, to what you're getting in a bank, uh, it kind of makes no sense, right? But yet it's there. It's it's wild. I mean, if you look at some of these, you know, liquidity pools on some of these DEXs, I mean, you can get, you know, 40, 47% APR providing liquidity on like a USDC die pool or like a USDC USDT pool, which is just, it's absurd. And and so and so, what what are your thoughts on you know I I I you know I commented on this earlier the Bitcoin versus crypto narrative. I mean, do you think Bitcoin still looks like the '80s 
And does crypto then look like the 20s? I mean, you know, what is your perspective on how, you know, Bitcoin and crypto have kind of matured and and do you do you bucket them together or do you do, are, are you viewing them, you know, separately at this point in terms of, you know, Bitcoin is more part of this macro narrative and, you know, crypto is is more like, hey, people got really rich on Bitcoin and they're just trying to recycle their money. Yeah, I, I think uh, I look at it in separate buckets. So for Bitcoin, um, I think it's really evolving into, like you said, a macro asset, right? So, you know, just the amount of attention that is paid to it is going to impact uh, uh, supply demand dynamics a huge degree, right? And um, I think one of the things that um, I saw a lot in traditional markets was uh, the development of uh, risk management solutions. So say, for example, if you're a farmer or, or you know, you're simply a corporate that needs to hedge its uh, uh, commodities or FX exposure, right? Those solutions are, are there, right? That's what the investment banks are for, right? They, they come out with all these like convoluted products like accumulators and so on. And, you know, from what I see in Asia right now, like uh, there's a good number of firms that are coming out to, to provide such solutions for, for guys like miners or corporates, things like that, right? And then you have like a different segment of the market, which is like your, your DeFi protocols, which are, I think are still in its nascent stage and nowhere near price discovery, right? So this one is more like, a, a, I think of it like a, a global um, iterative process, right? So these guys just figuring out along the way, you know, uh, like, like Andre likes to say, right? Like, like, like basically testing production. So in my opinion, there's there's an area of the market that is still pretty much the wild west, but Bitcoin as itself is uh, getting more structure and, and starting to resemble traditional markets more and more. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to dive into your into your thoughts on DeFi, and so let's do that in, in a couple minutes. But but a couple other questions first. Um, you know, the first is I know that you're really interested in um, you know using data from derivatives markets to inform uh, you know decision making. Can you kind of talk about how? You know, traders both on the institutional but also the retail side can use different data. Maybe it's open interest, funding rates. I mean, you know, whatever else to to inform their decision making and, and kind of their trading. Yeah, sure. So the common ones are like volume, OI, um, uh, on chain data, things like that, right? Uh, to a certain extent, uh, in my opinion, those are backward looking. So they're kind of lagging price in a sense. Um, uh, a common one that you see on Twitter is, uh, uh, you know, everyone giving their takes on funding rates, and you know, if I'm, I'm trying to get long a shit coin with leverage, and and the funding is negative, you know, I'm just gonna buy the crap out of it, right? Like, like, uh, yeah, sometimes that is true, but sometimes that doesn't really apply, right? So to a certain extent, I think uh, funding rates are a little bit overrated because they represent a, a small segment of the market. Maybe like two years ago when you know, the longer end of the curve wasn't as established. You don't have that much institutional capital coming in. You know, perpetual swaps can really uh, wreck uh, spot price, right? But uh, today, if you look at uh, derivatives volume as a, as a percentage of spot volume, it's structurally uh, been going lower, right? And uh, so what's actually helpful right now, I think, is uh, if you look at, uh, data points that retail doesn't normally look at, right? So if you look at things like uh, implied vol, right? That Deribit has uh, uh, enough liquidity that, that you can use uh, uh, um, IV data points uh, that are actually traded to make certain informed decisions about how uh, bigger money is thinking about the market, right? And then things like uh, futures basis, right? Uh, you can think about the mechanics of that, right? If you were to put on a trade like that yourself, how would you do it? And then you think about the implication of spot price. Right? So for example, like um, you want to put on a basis trade though, like June, right? So you have to get long spot Bitcoin, right? And you have to, and then you sell the June futures, right? So the market might not realize this, but, but that basically means that, you know, uh, the, the guys who are putting on this trade are basically holding Bitcoin for that duration, right? So they're not going to be impacted by or squeezed out of the market easily. Okay. And finally, one more thing. Uh, in data point wise, I think it's helpful to look at uh, fund inflows these days. So you get so many new products coming out uh, aside from Grayscale. And uh, 
you know, it's going to monitor like uh, how much they're buying uh, on a daily or weekly basis. And so how, how does one actually go about tracking fund inflows? I mean, are you referring to like looking at, you know, SEC, you know, filings, like looking at, you know, CIKs of funds or how do you actually go about tracking that? Yeah, there, there are actually like uh, certain data providers in the market that um, aggregate this data and uh, they, you know, they put out reports, uh, you know, how much did this fund buy, what coin did it buy, uh, things like that. Um, I have to get back to you on, on that. Exact data provider. Uh, cough, cough. We track 750 crypto funds SEC filings. So if anybody's interested in uh, in monitoring them, we have that data. <laughs> yeah, definitely the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you? You know, one question. You know, this is obviously the quote unquote fundamental value of podcasts, and we like to joke that you know. You know, it, there's not really any fundamentals, at least in our opinion. But but how do you begin to even think about asset valuation in crypto? You know, what would you define as the fundamentals, or are you more interested in you know day to day trading and, and arbitrage and, and opportunities there? No, no, I, I think uh, this asset valuation angle for, for crypto is actually really interesting because uh, coming from a traditional finance standpoint, this is something that is a whole new like animal altogether, right? So, for example, you see like some guys in the, in the market, they are like uh, pure value guys, right? So these guys perhaps used to work for some long-only funds. You know, they used to work in a bank where they, where they did like equity research. And so the framework by which they view the markets is uh, by valuation multiples, right? So you get a bunch of guys out there uh, raising funds, uh, investing on the basis of them, right? So you see like, uh, uh, for example, some commentary that, uh, you know, if Coinbase is 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 value at uh, this crazy valuation, then you know why why is Uniswap and SushiSwap still here, right? So that's one way to look at it. Now way is like you know some people go by the tech angle, right? They they look at the code, they look at uh, all the underlying, they think about tokenomics and so on, right? Some people combine everything, right? But I think the the the, the real elephant in the room is that. The, the, the life cycle for protocols is much shorter than, say, like stocks, right? So if you were to compare like a DeFi blue chip versus a, a stock blue chip, right? I love that we say oh. DeFi blue chips as if as if these things are blue chips that, you know, started to gain traction yeah, six exactly. months ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It's like shit that comes out like, like six months ago, but, but you know. It's like Pancake really... Swap is a blue chip now and nobody knew about it like a month ago and not a single person was trading on Smart Chain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so that brings a whole new, like, like interesting angle to, to this discussion where you know, how, how do you value something like that? Right. But I think the, the caveat here is that um, if you look from a macro perspective, not just from a crypto native one, uh, if you really think about it, if the Fed did not engage, or, or I mean, like global central banks, right, they did not engage in such heavy monetary easing starting last year, right? And brought rates down so much. And theoretically, all this stuff shouldn't be worth that much, right? Should be worth closer to zero, right? Like shit coins. So I think a, a big factor that is impacting uh, valuations in the space and causing uh, uh, such huge, uh, massive jump pumps in price even is that, you know, you're seeing a lot of capital looking for yield, right? And do you think when that's a crypto specific thing or do you just think that's across the board? I mean, if you look at SPACs, I mean, the amount of SPACs that are, you know, billion dollar SPACs at companies with zero in revenue is astronomical as well. Yeah, exactly. I think all these are like symptoms of, uh, you know, the money has to find a home, right? And, uh, uh, you know, like, like they have to keep going up the risk spectrum, you know, if you want to keep chasing like, like super normal returns, right? So we're seeing like, like wacky stuff going on right now. And and so how do you even begin to think? And and I don't think I've wrapped my head around this either. And so maybe you don't have a good answer. But like when you're when you're thinking about in, in you know quote unquote investing versus trading in crypto, I mean, how do you even you know how do you even make the decision like okay, I I want to buy sushi. I mean, what what would lead you at least in your personal account 
um, or in your opinion, it doesn't need to be based off your personal account to actually make an allocation for the long term. Or given that this market is clearly in some level of a bubble because of you know you know low interest rates and you know the market being flush with cash, do you just not feel confident in you know anything long term outside of Bitcoin? No, no. Um, actually, I I come from more of a trading perspective, but uh, I try to think of the fundamentals as well because if you think of uh, let's say like technical trading right you you, you do like uh, you, you risk like ten dollars to make like thirty dollars right but in crypto you get like 10x easy right if you're right so uh, one way to hold out your position is to definitely use like some kind of fundamental narrative that you think the market hasn't priced in yet okay so that's the first one and then the second uh, way that I try to think about it is is there a smarter way to express my view right so like uh, a lot of traditional finance or long only guys they, they they would buy the coin outright right as long as you know the fundamental story makes sense then you know you don't have to care about the drawdowns all you care about is whether or not it, it, it sort of discovers the price that you think it, it should be trading at right but say like uh, uh say you were bullish on, on curve right the, the protocol and you know you have you have a fixed sum of money right like is it is it smarter to be an lp or is it smarter to just buy the token outright right so that's a question that uh, i usually think about right like when it comes to protocols is there always a smarter way to uh, structure structure the trade so that you take as little risk as possible while keeping the upside i think that's i think that's really interesting i mean how, how do you actually think about that i mean in terms of you know, you know, in terms of DeFi and and playing these things, I mean, you know, let's let's dive right into DeFi. I mean, you know, if you're looking at something like Curve, I mean, how do you think about, you know, providing, you know, you know, being an LP versus staking versus actually just holding the asset? I mean, you know, how how do you think through that risk reward? I mean, obviously, with you know LP, depending on the tokens, you have the risk of impermanent loss, right? So, we'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah. So, so basically, like aside from the the typical. Um, uh, concerns of impermanent loss, which is more or less mitigated if you're looking at stable coins. But uh, in general, you uh, try to think of it as what what are the what, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? If I would to, to dump a certain amount of cash into this, right, uh, with each trade, right? If I buy the token outright, then you know worst that could happen is that it goes to zero, right? If I stake it. Then there is a time component to the trade as well, right? So I have to think about okay, what I think is going to happen in the next six months or even four years, for example, right? If I am an LP, right, I I deposit uh, X amount of money onto the protocol, right? I mean the the theoretical risk is always protocol failure things like that, but if you think about it. If we use Curve as an example, you are basically also betting that the pegs of the stable coins are all going to hold, right? So, I mean, in financial terms, you are basically selling a, a rainbow worst-off option, right? So, yeah, you are basically betting that in the time that you deposit your liquidity, the amount of returns that you are getting is basically your options premium, and you are just you are hoping that. You know, it doesn't get uh, "quote unquote" exercised in terms of one of the stablecoin pegs are, uh, uh, you know, going to zero, right? How, how do you actually think about the risk? I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, there are concerns among people with Tether, but for example, if you're providing like a USDC BUSD pool on, or, or you know, you know, some other stablecoins that maybe aren't Tether, I mean, how do you how do you assess the risk there? Um, you know, thinking about stablecoin specifically. Yeah, so uh, one of the ways to mitigate, like, uh, you know, stablecoin peg risk is, I mean, you can, no one can really predict what's going to happen to USDT or DAI, you know, but in general, you try to stick with those with a strong theoretical backing, so to speak, right? Like, if you think about it, um, some coins are actually more collateralized than others, so that's one angle to work from, right? From a risk management diversification perspective, if you put a coin to a pool and there's like five other coins in that same pool, then you know you're taking on the risk of five, right? I mean, sure that the risk is lower 
the higher number of coins you go, but you know that the risk is still existed, right? So, so I mean, there are many ways to think about it, but but uh, in general, if you keep the number of coins to a minimum, and uh, you know you don't chase like a, a pools that are you know less than one million in, in pool value, for example, right? You know, I, I think that's a good way to uh, mitigate uh, the risk. And and so you know, I mean, I guess we've already kind of gone down, you know, into, you know, a little bit deeper into DeFi, but what, what are your thoughts on DeFi? I mean, coming from traditional finance, I mean, you know, is this, you know, something that excites you? I mean, are you looking at this and being like, this is so stupid that I'm providing liquidity on a USDC, USDT pair and receiving, you know, 47% yield in, you know, you know, you know, sushi or cake or whatever token. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, what's real, what's not, you know, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, for DeFi right now, I think um, still in a nascent kind of stage. So it's kind of like discovering itself, kind of uh, figuring out where, where the goalposts are, where which lines not to cross, which lines are okay to cross. Um, you know, at some point, uh, you know, it's going to have to come to the end with regulation. But in general, if I talk specifically about the tech, uh, if you look at things like flash loans, this is something that, you know, you it's just not possible in, in, in the traditional world, right? And uh, there's a lot of uh, aspects to uh, what DeFi has made possible that wasn't possible before. So in general, I'm still very bullish on the space, but in what form it's going to play out in the long run, right? whether it's going to be um, tied to, uh, you know, certain sovereign entities or, or, you know, institutional entities or, you know, whether they can manage to uh, maintain uh, you know, the ideals of decentralization, I think uh, that, that's pretty much up in the air right now. And so one thing you alluded to earlier is relative valuation in crypto, right? If Coinbase is worth X, Uni should be worth Y. Or if Uni is worth X, then Sushi should be worth Y. So something really interesting is I had uh, my last guest on the podcast was Avi Fellman, who's the head of trading at Block Tower. And you know, one of the things that he said was that relative valuation only matters in bull markets. In, in in bear markets, it doesn't, but in bull markets, it does, right? I mean, you know, we we were speaking specifically about L1s at that point, right? You know, you know, first, you know, ETH moved and then Polkadot moved and then you know, Solana moved and Smart Chain and and you know that the the concept of relative valuation only matters at least in bull markets. I mean, uh, do you agree with that sentiment or do you do you have a different, you know, viewpoint? Kind of 50-50 on that one. So so to a certain extent, that is correct, right? And and if you think about uh what we mean by bull market, that's uh basically the same way as saying that you know all this capital is looking for a home, right? And when big capital is looking for a home, they're gonna compare, right? Which is the best uh, venue to deploy capital. So to that extent, that's how relative valuation plays out, in my opinion, right? On the other hand, if you're looking at um, real like tokens that accrue value, right? That, you know, uh, say we have a hypothetical protocol that doesn't need liquidity mining in order to boost uh, uh, users, right? And it just keeps going on and on and it's sustainable and, you know, it pays out its users a steady dividend each year. Then in that sense, is uh, relative valuation uh, uh, could work in a bear market as well, if you, if you want to call it that, right? But I think what we are seeing right now is that, you know, this um, DeFi scene is so new and people are trying to wrap their heads around it. So they just slap on whatever uh, matrix they can think of that, that has worked for them in uh, other uh, circumstances. And and so you know you mentioned obviously the Coinbase IPO and um, you know the big dexes. I mean, what do you, what do you think will happen if Coinbase? You know, uh, you know, I've heard you know rumblings that right now Coinbase is trading at closer to a hundred and thirty billion dollar valuation on on certain private markets. Uh, you know, not FTX, but actually you know real secondary shares trading. Mm-hmm. How do you you know how do you, do do you think this is a buy the rumor sell the news type event right where you know these these you know, DEXs may go up in value significantly before the IPO. Do you think they'll go up in value after? Or do you think it's going to be a non-event? Yeah, I I don't really have a view on, on you know, whether the valuations are too high or too low, right? Because I think a huge part of that is uh, where crypto market cap is, right? So 
especially if you value it in USD terms. But in, in general, uh, uh, I think if say you are an institutional investor in the US and you want to get exposure to Bitcoin or crypto, right? You want to look for pick and shovel plays, right? You know, uh, something like Coinbase or, or MicroStrategy, or, sorry, not MicroStrategy, but any of the miners, that, that would be good bets, right? That would be a proxy to, to get exposure to, to, to the crypto sector in general, right? If you want a pure Bitcoin ETF, I mean, for high liquidity, you've got grayscale, but, but you know, if you, if you want something that's more levered exposure, you could go for MicroStrategy, right? So, I, in general, I think like all these, uh, different valuations uh, are fitting different market appetites, right? So it's really tough to like, like, like say for in general, you know, like, like this one's too high, that one's too low, right? It's, it's way too many uh, factors. In the Especially long when everything is too high at this point. <laughs> and so a, a couple other, a couple other final questions. I, I mean, what do you think of this whole ETH gas fee, you know, conversation and, and the rise of, you know, ETH competitors and seemingly people actually interacting, at least in the case of Binance Smart Chain. I mean, you know, you know, you know, there's questions as to whether or not there's, you know, wash trading on PancakeSwap and as, as an example on Binance Smart Chain. But do you think ETH is in, in trouble? And, and do you think we will see more and more capital flowing to these other other L1s? And on top of that, do you think that just because there are things being built on top of the L1s, right? Because there's these applications, these DeFi protocols being built on top of these layer ones. Does that mean the layer ones themselves should accrue value? Yeah, I think, okay, I, I think like that's pretty much one of the, the, the main narratives right now, right? That, that you know, this EVE net, network congestion is crowding out uh, a lot of usage, basically. And in my opinion, uh, it's important to keep in mind uh, the, what you would call the, the, the truth of, of things, right? Like try to keep things objective. So if you look from that perspective, Eve has had a multi-year head start over uh, all the other L1s, right? That's for sure. And yes, BSC or, or any of the other L1s, you know, they've gathered some market share, they've uh, or they've you know had uh, pretty strong roadmaps, and, and you see like um, new plans for protocols showing up and things like that. And I don't think it's a it's going to be a world whereby, you know. Eve is going to die and like, like, you know, it's going to be a winner takes all kind of uh, industry. I think it's more a case of uh, uh, power to the consumers, right? Like in the future, you're going to get like interoperable uh, chain protocols, uh, uh, you know, allowing people to to just switch between chains easily. And then, so in the long run, Eve already has a strong plan to to fix so-called uh, flaws for today, right? What I'm seeing right now is that a lot of the L1s um, have nice idealistic roadmaps, but um, you know, in general, when you look at our products, uh, if something has worked for a longer time and the market has shown it has demand for it, has paid attention to it over a very long, like multi-year period, and I think that's the point where we can say, okay, this thing is gonna be around for a longer time. It's gonna be a strong competitor. I'm, I'm not saying like any of these are not strong competitors, but I think it's a bit premature to to say like you know, if it's definitely going down from here or you yeah. Know, I mean, like, all these, all these, this, this conversation is a 2021 conversation, and it's only March, the beginning of March, right? So you know, no one was having this conversation a couple months ago. And exactly. you know, you know, my my follow up to that though is if this is a power to the consumer thing, and if you have all this interoperability between chains, and it's you know, it becomes easier to just you know transact on different blockchains through your MetaMask or whatever other browser based wallet. Does that and and you know it becomes a game of whoever's got the lowest fees. Does that spell trouble for L1s? And 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 does that just make them not that exciting or valuable? And it just becomes the applications built on top of them that are. Yeah, if you talk about value accrual, that's like a completely different uh, discussion in terms of uh, uh, you know how the tokenomics of of each L1 is done. You know, uh, usage fees, uh, uh, incentives, things like that, right? If you talk about like true fundamental value accrual, I think it's going to be the protocols that can, uh, you know, operate cross chain. Yeah. So, so definitely, I think like like one thing that that I see very often in crypto is that liquidity begets liquidity, 
right? So, you know, when a protocol gets big, and it gets like more liquidity, it makes it more attractive for people to, to deposit more liquidity, for example. And, you know, when, when things operate that way, then eventually we are, we are heading towards a structure whereby the chains have to accommodate for the protocols rather than the other way around, like we are seeing now. And so my final question is, uh, is a fun one. It's, you know, what is the shittiest shitcoin that you, uh, you held or at least monitored in 2017? And uh, I mean, you know, my next question, you know, kind of to follow it up was, have you fallen down the degen rabbit hole? But it seems like given our conversation, you've at least explored it a little bit. And, you know, it, you know, it, and, and given given that's the case, what are some of the dumbest, you know, DeFi plays that you've you've done with your personal account? I mean, I can I can give an example of, of you know, mine. You know, I was mining something called ice and I didn't get it rug pulled, but, you know, I, 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 I you know, was, was, was staking and, you know, the price went down from like six bucks to like 10 cents on me in like an hour. So, you know, we're, we're, none of us are immune to this. <laughs> so like 2017, I wasn't really involved in uh, watching shit coins and things like that. So I actually did not buy any. So, uh, but this time around, uh, you know, the market looks far more interesting and, uh, you know, I, I've delved into some, uh, uh coins. Uh, I think there was one, um, are you familiar with this uh, protocol, Hedgic? Hedgic? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So, so basically, like, uh, uh, you know, um, that was one of the more degen plays, right? Because you, you have an anonymous founder, you have a, a protocol that, you know, on paper, um, it, uh, there are certain flaws due to the logic and things like that, right? And then, and then uh, I think late last year, that was, they were saying, like, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to, and make a new protocol, you know, built on top of Hedgic, right? Uh, and, you know, that, that one was, I can't remember, but the supply was extremely limited. And uh, I believe it was, it was, the ticker is white, but uh, yeah, in general, I made a little bit of money on that actually, but that was super DJN, right? <laughs> it's, there's no product, there is no, there is a, nothing at all except for like a roadmap and like fake description, fake white paper. Yeah, but. 20, 2017 all over again. It's uh, it's funny. I mean, I still remember, you know, you'd go on a website in in 2017 and it had stock images as founders. <laughs> there were so there were so many of these things. It's uh, I actually was doing something on my personal Twitter. I need to start it again, but I was doing something called Shitcoin of the Day, and I'd recap huh. a 2017 garbage token, and so. You know, there was there was Denticoin, which I always talk about on the podcast, just one of my favorite ones. It went like four thousand X in like a day or two days. It went up to two billion in market cap. There's uh I mean there's there's just so many great ones. There's one called All Sports Chain. I think you can still actually find it. You can go on their website. It it, it is definitely not uh English. Uh -huh. Um uh -huh. there's just there's just there's just so many great ones and it's it's funny that all of us are falling down that rabbit hole a little bit again, you know, and, uh, it's, it's tempting. I mean, this is, you know, in this market, things are moving so fast. So it's, it's tempting to you know, try your luck and, you know, some of these casinos. Yeah. Yeah. Be better lucky than good. Right. Exactly. 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 So Shane, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I loved this conversation. I love diving deep on DeFi. I could probably ask you questions for the next three hours, but I'm sure you got, you know, better things to do. So thanks again. And, and so my last question is how can people, um, you know, find you and find Bybit online and follow you guys. And we'll obviously put that in the description as well. Yeah. So if you want to trade on Bybit, you can go to bybit.com. Um, uh, personally, I, I don't have a Twitter account, but, um, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. So uh, I'll give the link to you after this. Great. Thank you so much. And have a, have a good rest of the day. Cool. Thanks, Josh.